this month, we have a very special filled guide to the movies discussion, one in which we're also joined by Sam Pope. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having us. Hi there. So, Phil, you've produced another director retrospective, this time everybody's favourite cult director, Quentin Tarantino. Now, this is your fourth one, Phil. Where do you find the time for these? I'm not totally sure. I do find the time. I've been doing this for three years now, and I've only done four. So, that's, uh, <laughs> that's not a great hit rate. <laughs> well, it's pretty good, considering the other three are what, Ridley Scott, Wes Anderson, and the Coen brothers. Let's start off, let's put these questions in perspective for people that are following the show where can they find the article that i'm going to be talking about phil okay so my website is philforbearblog.wordpress.com and in the uh, features section are uh, all four of my direct retrospectives and um, where you find tarantino's one right at the top because it's the most recent one by the way in your reviews what's the one that's generated the most hits this year this year i think endgame Captain Marvel, my top two most read, and I think Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is now third, actually. Wow, okay. Yeah, when I review sort of smaller films, I generally get only sort of 10 to 20 hits on them, and no one's interested in those, they only want to watch things that are Disney, right? I think they own everything now. Okay, for number four then, why Quentin Tarantino? Actually, this is uh, because of one of your listeners, so one of your listeners, a guy called Declan, contacted me on Twitter after I wrote, I think it was the Cohen's retrospective, saying, please, could I do Tarantino next? And I thought, well, if somebody's going to actually read my site and ask me to do something, I might as well do it, right? Do you have a lot of fun doing it? Oh, I do. The retrospective stuff is probably the stuff I enjoy the most. I love being able to just watch the films in sequence and sort of see how they build upon you know everything they've done before. I'm now going to go off script here. Sam, if there was a retrospective of a director you'd like Phil to cover, what one would you like him to cover? Oh, God, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Have you done one about Ridley Scott? Yeah. Yes. That was number yeah. one. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Ah. Okay, and you've done Nolan? No, I haven't done Nolan. He's he's on my list of maybes, yeah. Yeah, well, that would be really interesting, actually, because I, I think... Interstellar and Dunkirk are just two incredible films, but they're 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 blockbusters, but they're also well made, you know, masterpieces. They're they're not kind of hollow, just studio films put out there just to get the numbers, bums on seats. They're incredible, beautiful, sophisticated things. Yeah, almost almost kind of what Kubrick was trying to do. I think Nolan and P.T. Anderson. So my shortlist is um, Scorsese. Nolan, P.T. Anderson, and David Fincher. They're on my maybe next list. Oh, Nolan would be good. We, we could be talking about him soon then. We'll bring you back for that, Sam. Oh, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fantastic. So let's stick with Quentin Tarantino. Now, obviously I've seen pretty much most of his films. And I think, personally, that he's more of an intellectual rather than an emotional filmmaker because of the way... He cuts his films and the way he changes narratives. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? I'm going to lean towards agree because, so in terms of intellectual, I think that he's really more interested in making films about films. So, whether that's the way that he makes them or whether that's in referencing other films, he's much more interested in that, I think, than 
any kind of character emotional beats. All the sort of best relationships in his films are actually more male friends than sort of romantic or anything sort of dramatically, uh, you know, heart-rending or anything like that. Okay, interesting. Sam, what would you say? Do you say he's more of an intellectual than an emotional filmmaker? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, because he's 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 always he's always referencing something, and I think that's 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 the pleasure of it. I mean, uh, watching the the most recent one that came out. Obviously, I'm far too young to get most of the references. Yeah, me too. Yeah, always a pleasure having you. <laughs> and we're going to be talking to Phil about this in a minute about a reference he's made. Yeah. But it was. I th- I think that was the thing that was really heartening about it is the fact that you could watch it and you could you could see all these really amazing things that. I remember watching that as a kid. I remember this. I remember that. A lot of that kind of washed straight over me, but I still got so many different references and I, I, I kind of understood what he was trying to do. Obviously, the ending was took me a while to yeah digest that one. It took me a couple of days before I sort of decided what I thought about that one. But it, it, it was a slow burn and you knew that he wasn't doing it for anyone else apart from himself. He's clearly got to that point. He's like, I'm just going to make a film. But then hasn't he, hasn't he come out and said that he wants to make a horror film now? I'm not sure. I know that he's talked about his Star Trek film a lot recently. It, it might well be true, because if you look at what he's done recently, mm. he's done genre films, hasn't he? So yeah. he's done his World War II film. He's done yep. his Westerns. Yeah. And he's now done his film about films. Yeah. So why wouldn't he take on a horror? Yeah, hasn't he not? already I'm, done a horror film, though? He didn't direct it, but he wrote the script from Dust Till Dawn. Hmm... Well, I don't know if I'd call that a horror film. Really? No. Vampires shredding people? Hang on, let's let's put horror films to the test. Neil and Graham, have you seen Yes. This? Yes. It's not a horror it's film. It's not then. a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So Well that's killed that one. Uh, yeah, then. that one's let's move on. Does Tarantino claim my best friend's birthday, and I admit I haven't seen this, as one of his only ten films he will make? No, he doesn't. I've not seen it. I'm not sure that many people have. So my understanding is that there's only about 30 minutes left of that film, thanks to a fire wherever it was stored. Whilst I've not seen it, apparently True Romance is essentially sort of carrying the main sort of plotline of that film in it. So it's been burnt, it's gone, it's ignored. But obviously the film that set everybody alight was Reservoir Dogs. Here are your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. You're under arrest, sugar. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. There, the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? Thank you for adding you were 11 when it came out. Really appreciate (laughs) that. Um, That's okay. (laughs) It has many characteristics of its films and use of music and the way it cuts in time. Yet, to me, it seemed more like a stage play. What are your thoughts on the film and its origins? particularly its Far East origins. 
firstly, it's it's essential, you know, just not a, just essential Tarantino, but I think it's essential from a film point of view. In terms of its origins, it's just the same with every Tarantino film that he's watched a ridiculous amount of films, majority of which I'll never get to see, and he takes all of those and sort of merges them into his own style. And as for stage play, I think that that's born out of, uh, he wrote a script based on what sort of budget he thought he could get. Hence, I'm not going to show the actual crime. I'm going to stick it in a disused warehouse after the crime, because that won't be as much money to film. Yeah, and that was interesting, not showing the crime, but then describing it. I'm still not quite 100% sure on it, but it worked at the time. Uh, It certainly worked for me. I was going to say in my piece, I said that literally, like, well, if I was going to be really nitpicky, the only thing that sort of struck me on about the tenth time of watching it when I did watch it for this is why on earth do the police need to have an undercover cop in this crime ring? Because this crime ring don't seem particularly organised and high sort of brow in terms of how much money they're stealing. Like, what's the need for that high risk uh, policing? sort of situation yeah actually fair enough your thoughts on this one sam hmm. i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it i, I suppose the thing is that with any tarantino film if you haven't seen the the raft of <laughs> obscure <laughs> sort of hong kong movies that he's seen you you almost have to go out and go okay where's he coming from? It's it's a bit like an advent calendar. You know, you open one door and you've got a, okay, right, this, so this is a doorway to somewhere else. You've got another scene. This is a doorway to somewhere else. So many great references in it. I, if I'm honest, it, it's not my favourite. I, I still I still love Pulp. Jackie Brown, I absolutely love. Just And I, I, I suppose Django Unchained just because I love all those Sergio Leone kind of spaghetti westerns. It's, it's interesting. I've got friends who absolutely love Kill Bill. Uh, and they love it because they love Bruce Lee. They love all these all these martial art films. I'm not a massive fan. Good start to where you wanted to get to. Yeah, and I say with Pulp, it's it's just because I love like uh, all this new wave, and you you just kind of go, ah, okay, brilliant. And there's references to Hitchcock in it, and I love all those kind of films. So f- for me, with with Reservoir, I kind of how intimate it was and how gritty it was, and the fact that it didn't do what I expected. You, you don't see the crime. You know, um, you're stuck in the room and you're just, you're going, oh my God, he's going to cut his ear off. Oh my God. And then the camera moves. I'd never noticed that. It's, it sounds like the most stupid thing. But when I was, when I rewatched it later, when I was slightly older, the camera actually moved because that's what I did. There's so many funny, amazing little, little bits and pieces in it. But yeah, um, I, I can't, I can't say it's my favorite. No. The no. bizarre thing with that, with the cutting the ear off and the camera moves, we did a piece of Elijah on Dr. No, and there's a scene where Bond has been beaten, really badly beaten up, and the camera pans away exactly the same way and then cuts back yeah. after the beating. It's almost like Tarantino stole it from that film. I'm sure he probably did. I'm sure he probably did. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, there's, there's something that made me laugh the other day. I saw some really obscure Australian film. I think it was called Patrick, you, it's you, from seventy-eight. Yeah, you, you know, you know the one I'm on about. It's kind mm-hmm. of part of that ausploitation kind of scene. And he he's in a coma, and he's sat up in bed, and his eyes are wide open, and he does this thing where he involuntarily spits at people. He pinched that and put it in Kill Bill because Uma Thurman does it. All yeah, right, <laughs> I never made that. He actually cracked me up because I was watching it in the cinema, and I was like, 
oh, it was, I was like, oh, they've stolen, he's stolen that from the, that Australian film. For me, I get giddy over that kind of nonsense. But then I, I, I have this same kind of feeling whenever I see an Edgar Wright film. You know, that's, that's why I loved Hot Fuzz so much. Um, yeah, no, you know, Shaun good. of the Dead and all those kind yeah. of stuff. Just because you, you, you kind of, you revel in the fact that there's so many of these sharp, little witty references and it's, it's such a nice little nod and you're like, ah, ah, I like that. Have you seen Patrick, Phil? No, I've not seen Patrick. But I mean, talking of, you know, that sort of thing, I think that with Tarantino, there's almost a sense that even when you're not getting the reference, you kind of are aware that there's a reference, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you're yeah, kind of thinking yeah. there is something there. And you saying, you know, I was 11 when this came out. So I was 11 when this when Reservoir Dogs came out, but I didn't see it until I was probably 13 or 14. And I'm not sure if I saw this or Pulp Fiction first. But basically, when I was an early teen, my brother was hugely into Hong Kong cinema. So like John Woo and all that sort of stuff. And I would see all of that sort of all bits of those sort of film. My other friends were into Japanese animation and we'd see those sort of films. And then when I watched the likes of Reservoir Dogs and then you talk about Kill Bill, there's all that stuff that you know we've watched yeah. as like kids and yeah. sort of thought was really, really cool. And then there's a Western filmmaker who puts it into his films and it's suddenly like everybody else is then kind of talking about stuff that you and your mates have been talking about, you know, when when you were sort of growing up watching films, and it's great. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, the thing that I loved is um, watching Kill Bill and Uma Thurman's wearing that yellow jumpsuit, the same that one, the same one that Bruce Lee wears, and you're just like, ah, oh, fantastic. And you just, uh, yeah, there there are so many things I absolutely adore about it. The violence on the other. <laughs> It, it it kind of I think with Django Unchained it it got to a point where it was almost kind of comical I think where yeah it's Tom and Jerry isn't it yeah. <laughs> it's it's the it's the scene where he's kind of you know bodies getting repeatedly shot and yeah. you're just like wow this is uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it was Django where he introduced that whole idea of like somebody gets shot and the blood would like shoot out like five feet. From yeah. Into, you know, and he did that for Django and Hateful Eight where like somebody gets shot and the blood just seems to like shoot out in an almost sort of comical yeah. like <laughs> But isn't, isn't that a reference to the Wild Bunch? <laughs> Probably, yeah. It's exactly, yeah. Uh, has Tarantino done anything original? <laughs> I mean, that, so that's, that's a really good point. Oh, that's I a very mean, good question. Yeah, yeah. I, But I just want to go back to Reservoir Dogs and there's a famous story that Wes Craven was in the audience watching it and he walked out. He couldn't, you know, when they come to the scene where he cuts the ear off. Have you seen it, Neil, have you? Mm. Reservoir Dogs, yeah. Was it all right? Didn't it impact you? thank you very much. I just wanted to check. I don't want you to have sleepless nights. But Wes Craven walked out. (laughs) Geek bugger. And um, and Tarantino went to see him and he said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, I just can't stand watching violence like that. My question for you then, Phil, James Woods was approached for the film, but Woods' agent turned it down. And in fact, when Woods found out later, he fired him. What role do you think James Woods would have played? I guess, given where Tarantino was in terms of he needed this to get made, he would have probably offered Woods whichever role he wanted, wouldn't he? Or likely the Harvey Keitel role. See, I think it was the Bashimi role. It's not a very, that's not a very big, big role, is it? Yeah. And, you know, so it depends, doesn't it? Because did he have so Kaitel famously part financed that film, didn't he? Yeah. So it kind of depends. Did he have Kaitel on board already? Yes, he did. Or was yeah. he, okay? So then, so then, yeah, maybe he would have been like looking for 
other famous people to fill out the smaller roles. I can't imagine James Woods working. Buscemi's great in that film, constantly referring to how he wants everyone to act professionally. I think it's one of the funniest re- repetitions in the film. And I can't imagine James Woods delivering that. He's much more Ooh, I sinister. I, I, I see him as exactly like that. If you've seen a film called Bestseller... Yeah, so my James Woods is consists mostly of Salvador and Casino. Oof. You're missing so much, mate. So much. The Onion Field, you have to see that. And you certainly have to see Bestseller. Both brilliant Woods performances, but I digress. Let's talk about the acting before we move on. What performances in Reservoir Dogs stand out for you? So I'd say there's three that I like. But it comes down to the vignettes, like the little stories that he tells in the film. So Tim Roth, when he does the commode story, I just think is just brilliant and the way that tarantino edits it together so he's telling the story both inside the story itself and sort of outside of it i think Bashemi's repeat of where professionals is hilarious and i think madsen just purely because of the torture scene he manages to make it incredibly difficult to watch i was i was really impressed i mean yeah the, the scene where he's he's uh, recanting the story trying to memorize it i, th- I thought it's fantastic I, I remember seeing that when i was um I was about nineteen, and I I, I tried Thanks to as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying that's when I saw it. Yeah, um, I, I tried I tried to copy it because we we had to do a project. We had to take cultural artistic references from a certain decade. So I I, I pulled out the short straw apparently, and they said, "Oh, you got the '90s," and I was like, "Oh, I could make a film. I'll do a Tantino thing." So we had to do some boring presentation. So I did it where it was us prepping for the presentation inside a presentation then doing the presentation as a little nod but anyway i thought i thought it was really clever but yeah tim roth yeah tim roth yeah yeah i thought i thought he was i thought he was fantastic i've always really admired and loved him as an actor so it was it was kind of fantastic really um harvard cartel i absolutely adore the torture scene for me was yeah, it was it's good, but it's yeah, I, it just turned my stomach. So, but okay. yeah, it's Tim Tim Roth's performance. I, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I think Tim Roth Graham. doing the double bit. Keitel by by a mile, Harvey Keitel. He is fully three dimensional, and you just look at him and you think, "Oh my god, I wish, I hope I never meet somebody like that." <laughs> you know, it's really he he just lived the part. I loved it. I loved everybody in it, if I'm going to be honest. I just, it was, when I first sat down and watched that film, it was just how different it was from anything else we'd ever seen. You know, it was sort of minimalist, cut to the bone, very strange, very odd, very creepy, very off kilter. It had all of those elements and a stellar cast who were just right at the top of their game. And, as a director, he pulled that all out of those actors. To me, that's the director's job, to get the best performances he can out of it. And it worked so well, and they all worked together really, really well. Well, I'm going to give a little shout-out to Chris Penn, who oh, I thought was yes. great in that film. OK, moving on. Now, Quentin Tarantino came to the UK to promote Reservoir Dogs, and you know it was a huge hit over here, more so than America at the time. He was pleased to see people. He was on all the TV shows. He's interviewed in all the press. And he was just really good, you know, a film geek. But he has changed over the years. And he's become a bit of a twat, really. Um, <laughs> like in the recent Can interview. Do you think I'm right there, Phil, or not? See, I've always got 
time for actors and directors who just get grumpy with like interviews and stuff because like when you think of you know how much they have to answer the same questions over and over again you're talking about he's had 25 years of people having a pop at him over his particular style and he probably you know you know, maybe he had a little sleep that night and he was having a bad day. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I just think that, you know, it's like when you hear about Russell Crowe, like throwing phones and, you know, all those sorts of things. I just think that they're entitled to their bad days, but I guess yeah. they also live in a bit of a bubble, don't they? So, In, in fairness to Tarantino, I think, he, I think he's right to be kind of a little bit irked if, if people are kind of, yeah, asking the same questions about, you know, violence. And because I think every single time it's like Channel 4 News has had him on. Where, well, the Christian you, Guru yeah, you know, the one is yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And he's just like, I'm shutting your butt down. Yeah, but Christian Guru Murphy was a fan. I mean, to be fair, if you want to go at Christian Guru Murphy in a star interview, his Robert Downey Jr. interview was disgusting. But to the, the thing is, though, is is when outlets ask for interviews, they ask for interviews under different guises, don't they? So, you know, if he's just doing a press tour for his latest film, it's not meant to be a hard-hitting, incisive interview. It's like puff piece or that sort of thing. If Christian Guru Murphy, and, you know, he's a great at interviewing people, but I don't know, did he go into that interview it was a press junket interview and then Tarantino no, has done a, 20, it, 20 you it, know has he done a hundred of them that day and he's in a he's, you know he's not in the mood for that it may well be it seemed to be a one-to-one special for the channel four the one with Robert Downey Jr. definitely was a junket and um he went beyond the pale but I think the wins with Tarantino I thought the questions were valid as Christian Guru Murphy said I am a fan I love your work See, I'm not coming at it from the angle I want to put you down. Tarantino really kicked off. I mean, the, the interviews on YouTube, for anybody listening to this who wants to watch it, I did an interview with Film Autonomy recently, and this came up there, and they cut the interview in, into that. It's interesting, and I think it just shows where Tarantino is as a person, but we'll be touching on that more later on. But, I mean, isn't it just the, the old saying that, you know, you die young, the hero, or you can live it old enough to be declared the villain, you know? And that's the problem. I mean, everybody now sees him as volatile and they want to have a pop at him. And, and the, you get the, overused to people, don't uh, you? Yeah, and he just he just wants to make films. He is, to, to my mind, he's a massive film nerd, and I love him. I absolutely love his work. You don't hear Francis Ford Coppola doing this and he gets interviewed a lot. You don't, Spielberg doesn't yeah, get Yeah, I know, like but this. they're different, different people, you know? I was going to say, I suspect Tarantino has had 25 plus years of people going, why do you have to have violent film? Surely Tarantino's answer is, well, that's the sort of film I make. Just don't watch it if you're not interested. And that's all he had to say. And I'd have been happy with that answer. But he had to be a cock. <laughs> I, I it's it's going to be it's going to be pure frustration because if if you've spent that much money that much time you've you know written it you've produced it you've done all the pre-production you've done all the filming you've done all the post-production you've done the editing you've done all that nonsense you how long has this film been in the pipeline for you've got it made done dusted you just want to get it out there you want people to enjoy it people are still asking the same stupid questions you, you're going to be a little bit annoyed aren't you okay let's move on then to my favourite Tarantino film, and I think yours as well, Sam, Pulp Fiction. Now, it's put together like an intricate jigsaw. There's great characters, great music, and at that time, 
I was attending press shows and there were usually three people and I walked into this room and it was packed and I couldn't work out why and then the film started and it is, to my mind, a masterpiece. What are your thoughts on it? I think you're right. I think this is... So this is hands down Tarantino's best film. It's not my favourite. We'll get on to that in a second. But it is his best film. Everything works in it. I'm just grateful that when I was watching it on VHS as an early teen with my brother, that my parents thought it was incredibly dull and walked out. You're a knob sometimes, (laughs) Phil. What what I'm saying is, is that I think I was 14 or whatever it was, but I'm pretty confident that if my parents had stayed during their watching of that film and it got to the drug overdose scene, that that VHS would have been turned off we would have been told we weren't watching the rest of the film so not, really not the anal rape sequence it. then the I think, first I time the, it was ever in a Disney film apparently I think I think the overdose is before that but yeah if, if they hadn't have turned it off at that point they would have <laughs> <laughs> Sam you rate it quite highly don't you yeah I, I was absolutely blown away with it um, I saw it on VHS as well <laughs> <laughs> Neil your thoughts on Pulp Fiction oh yeah superb isn't it as Phil says, it's his best film. I haven't seen it for ages and ages and ages, oh, and I, I it's, just... It's it's still um, just as good as it was the first yeah. time I saw it. I mean, it's just perfect. The dialogue is just sharp as a pin. The, the camera work, the editing. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. The music, the soundtrack, everything. It's one of those ones that you always go back to, and it never gets old. The dialogue in it... I mean, I, I, love, I love it as much as With Nile and I for the dialogue, how sharp it is. There are so many lines, there's so many great quotable lines. So many it. memes come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, th- I think almost every scene has entered, like, the pop culture pantheon somewhere, yeah. hasn't it? I yeah. Mean, Harvey Keitel, as he's yeah. like, Wolf, advertising... Yeah advertising insurance with it it's, it's and, just like, and that's the mad thing that's it's not even one of the one of the 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 film it's just like one section of it and they've taken one of the little mignettes it's, it's it's mad how it's kind of it's seeped into the culture you kind of get films like that with i suppose it's like with the matrix or something like you or if you know when lord of the rings first came out it's like every other film you can kind of see like ah okay they're just trying to do this or they've or they've seen it so someone set the benchmark and everyone's trying to sort of you know go well that's that's how good it can be you know we can do and we can go in that direction it can be that good and yeah and pulp's that kind of thing it's I mean, it is it is funny because, you you know, you, you said, you know, has he ever done something original? With Pulp, it almost doesn't matter. I think that's true. Of, uh, it's a bit of a flippant remark, but I think that's even if nothing he does in a, in a little bits is original, the way that he puts it all together is his originality. I think it's just that is what he what makes his stuff great. Graeme, your thoughts on Pulp Fiction? Well, I've listened to all you guys praising it, and I'm going to be a bit controversial and say I think it's better than all of that. I really, it's just absolutely mind-bendingly good you think you, you're watching it and you watch the initial scene and you, and you think oh that's just brilliant and then it just gets better and better and then you realize oh hang on a minute this is out of sequence oh that's really clever oh god what's happening now oh that refers back to early oh that's even better oh and then when he goes over the bump in the car and shoots the guy behind him you think <laughs> yeah. oh my god God, what? I've never seen that in a film. Never seen that in no, a film. It, that it, was just it, genius. Because you, I didn't expect it. It no, completely threw and, me. And I was in the cinema, and everybody in the cinema's heads in front of me shot backwards as everybody went, "What the hell just happened there?" And we were all 
And people just roared with laughter because we were all completely surprised. And you don't expect it. They go on a massive tangent. They, they have to go over to someone's house. Oh, yes. Basically clean up all the brain and everything else. You think, <laughs> why, why are we seeing this bit? Why, why aren't we seeing something more exciting? Yeah. It's just the hilarity of it and how ridiculous it is. And the conversation about, you know, <laughs> of course, I have the best coffee. And Tarantino's in it. Yes. And he's delivering the line, yeah. you know, just how good his coffee is. It's just, oh, it's just brilliant. Just brilliant. And I went to see it at least three times in the first couple of weeks it was out because I just couldn't get over it. I just thought, how did he put this together? Hmm. How did he write this? Actually, how was this all filmed? How did he film it in sequence and then put it together? Did he chop it? Did he do it in this order? How did he write? So as a film fan, it drives you berserk because you just want to know everything about it. By Miles' his best film. Phil, you talk about this film as being the beginnings of a Tarantino cinematic universe, and yet I can't tell you how much I hate that phrase. <laughs> what did you mean by that? It's the Vega brothers, isn't it? So Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs is Vic Vega, and John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction is Vincent Vega. Madsen has talked about how those two are actually brothers, and that Tarantino and Madsen have discussed making a, a Vega brothers film. And that obviously that means that those two films happened in the same world. And I guess recently with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, with the mid-credits scene, spoilers, although it's not really spoiler to the plot, but Rick Dalton smoking and advertising red apple cigarettes, which is Tarantino's fake brand of cigarette that appears in every one of his films, I think. <laughs> so it, it kind of suggests that... This is Tarantino's sort of universe where all of these films arguably happen in that world, you know, and they all reference each other in some way. Can I just stop you there, Phil, and say, there's another bloody layer to it that I didn't know or understand <laughs> and I didn't see that either. Oh, hell. <laughs> Am I watching these films or are they just passing me by sometimes? I really no, worry. No, no, no. But it's, 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 that, it's that level of geekery that, yes. you know, you, hmm. some yeah, people can appreciate. It. And it's fantastic because the, the, the thing that's interesting is the ending of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because he's built his own world, he's set it up where he can suddenly go, well, what happens if... They the, go into the wrong house. Yeah, they go to the wrong house and they pick the wrong house on the wrong night. Well, why don't you go down that road and I'll hand this over to Phil. Phil has a more interesting idea about the flamethrower sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Over to you, Phil. Yeah, well, again, it's back to this. It's his world, right? So if we take that Inglorious Bastards happens in this world that he's created and that that is real, then the sequence at the end, again, spoilers, that he rewrites history, tortures a whole load of Nazis and has somebody on a balcony shooting down. Then Rick Dalton's film that we see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is surely referencing that historical fact from that world, right? You know, that, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It does, it does. Because the thing is, it's, it's that fascinating thing of why wouldn't it? Yeah. Because if you've got all these different things referencing and, uh, yeah. Is there a point where you know Tarantino is going to put fast numbers of references in it that we try and find references everywhere? And we're, and we're stretching it so much. Yeah, probably. Maybe it's too good to be true. You can see there's a link there. The fascinating thing was just to watch him rehearsing and practicing with the flamethrower earlier in yes, the film. Yes. <laughs> it's just this, yeah. this wonderful thing. So he's, yeah, he became an expert with it eventually. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but again, and the thing I loved about 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was we had the same sort of effect as when he, they went over the bump and he shot the, the guy's head. Mm. It was, hang on a minute, no, that's the wrong house. What are, what are you doing in there? You're in the wrong... And then you go, oh, no, I was thinking, course. no, surely they then go on to, wait yes, a minute, what's, what's happening? Here? What's Brad Pitt doing? And wait a minute. just completely caught me. And then when it goes out to the flamethrower, when he rushes off into the little hut, I thought, oh, he's gone to hide. Oh, no, he's back with the flame. That's why he's practised. And you think, oh, this is just layers and layers and layers. And the flamethrower wasn't anywhere near the most brutal part of that whole scene. (laughs) No. Let's go back to Pulp Fiction. (laughs) And we spoke about the cinematic universe, but one of the other things he does is bring back actors and actresses to play parts. They've either been forgotten or they don't normally do. So for me, Pulp Fiction, Travolta, seeing him back, bearing in mind I'd seen him go through the look who's talking shite that had been going on for a couple of years. And it was just a breath of fresh air. Now, what performances stood out for you then, Phil? When I watched that, I'd never seen Sam Jackson in anything before. And he was just ridiculously good. And that speech, the path of the righteous man, is just like a force to be reckoned with. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. And the other one I really, really loved, probably because I think I'd seen other films around that time was Christopher Walken. So he has a very small role and he's just genius. I've forgotten about that. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd seen other Walken films around that sort of time and I thought he was great. And I, I, I couldn't quite understand why he wasn't in as many films as like humanly possible based on, you know, that, that sort of scene. Yeah. And of course the other great Walken performance and speech is in True Romance. Yeah. With yeah. him and Dennis Hopper. Yeah. And he just gives this speech about, and he just goes on before killing him. And I, that is just one of the brilliant sequences. Well, isn't it because Dennis Hopper knows that he's going to be killed? Oh, yeah. yeah. And he's, so he Hopper just thinks, intimidates him. He just thinks, well, to hell with it. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so just kind of like, rub, completely like rubbing up the wrong way. Yeah. But, but that's the thing with Walker. I mean, this is why Walken has been underused in films. They use him for key sequences. I remember the film version of Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin starred in, and the standout sequence in that film is the one with Christopher Walken. Now, Walken started as a song and dance man, so to put him into a musical was great. And again, what's that Fat Boy Slim video he's in? Yeah, Weapon of Choice. Yeah, and, uh, and again, it's Weapon of Choice, isn't it? Weapon of Choice, yes. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's just uh, brilliant. He is only used for small things. He just doesn't seem to get those performances in. And again, Tarantino, whether through his scripts or through these, his films, generates this sort of level. The best performance I've seen recently, he played King Louis. Oh, 
Yes, in Jungle Book. Yeah, Jungle Book. yeah. Yes. It's it's the most it's the most hilarious, heartening, and most fantastic thing for him to. You yeah. to hear him sing that the song at the temple. He makes him really creepy, doesn't yeah, he? Does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to be like you. Does he ruin my childhood? <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. <laughs> but if you've never seen Dogs of War with Walken starred in, that is well worth tracking down because there's a sequence at the end where he doesn't kill somebody. He shoots a mirror, thinking he's killing somebody, and the look on his face is horrific. But it's interesting, because why has why he always been cast in films as a villain? I think it's the intensity of what he did in Deer Hunter sort of set it. I mean, before that, he was in films like Roseland, where he played a gigolo dancer, those sort of films. And then after the Deer Hunter, he was typecast, and he never really got away from it. The first film he's in is... Uh, isn't he in Annie Hall? That's like his first He's film. in Annie Hall. That was his first performance, wasn't it? Uh, no, he's in the Anderson tapes before that with uh, Sean Connery in 1972. So that that's good. But Brainstorm's another one with him and Natalie Wood, which is a great film. And he's you know plays a scientist in that, just pushing the boundaries of where death can take us. And I thought that was a great film as well. Natalie Wood. So in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Brad Pitt's wife was called Natalie, wasn't she? And they were on oh, a boat. Shit. And I wondered, she? I, wondered if, I wondered if that was a reference. Do you know what? I thought the whole thing was a reference to the Robert Wagner Natalie Wood, allegedly, allegedly, for the sake of any legal ramifications of this podcast. So this brings us on to Jackie Brown, based on Elmore Leonard's novel Rum Punch. Phil, you say this is your favourite Tarantino film. Why is that? Yeah. Well, so two probable reasons. So first, it's the first one I went to see at the cinema. So it's the first Tarantino I got to see at the cinema and it was a whole new thing for me to see that, that there. And obviously the setting and the location obviously is a big thing. But for me, it's his most grown up film. The The plot is much more densely sort of plotted in terms of the number of characters and, and the way that it all sort of interlocks together and and the characters are much more three-dimensional so i don't think that tarantino should ever do sequels with any of his characters so you know that vega brothers sort of thing i just don't think he should do that because i think his characters spout cool stories and cool lines but they're not necessarily the sort of people that i want to know more about because i feel that that might undermine them with Jackie Brown, I think all of those characters in there are really well-written, three-dimensional characters. And I think that's because it's not they're not Tarantino's characters. And for me, I just think it's its not as best technically. That's clearly Pulp Fiction. That's, you know, but this is the one that when I watch it again, I enjoy it so much. And I defy anyone to not, to not be humming across 110th Street after you've watched it. <laughs> Good, good song, good film as well, across 110th Street, Anthony Quinn. Okay, so what about performances? Again, it's another ensemble piece. For me, Bridget Fonda, I mean, it's just a shame she doesn't act anymore. And it just shows it how good she is in this. Who stands out for you? I'd love to say it was Pam Greer because it's her film, but for me it's Robert Forster and De Niro. So Forster, I think, is fantastic. I'd never seen him before, and I'm not totally sure I've seen him too much since. He was great in The Black Hole. Um, 
Oh, <laughs> um, right. Okay. Moving on. I'm not, I, that was a wind up at me. I'm just not. I'm not going to bite on that. Okay. So when I first saw Jackie Brown, I thought De Niro didn't really do anything in it, and I thought it was a bit of a disappointment because of how great he's been in lots of other stuff. But when I watch it again, I realise how much De Niro is doing, but in a very quiet sort of hidden way I think he's really really like sort of actually quite powerful especially when Bridget Fonda's character pushes him over the edge and it kind of it's all been bubbling along you know for the whole film I haven't seen it in I haven't seen it in years but yeah from what, from what I remember I, I I do remember yeah seeing De Niro and yeah I, I do remember sort of being a little bit underwhelmed but yeah I think I think I'll have to give it a rewatch I think okay Neil Pam Greer I just the whole film's about her, and it's yeah. about tight. You know, it's it's nice that they, the two films he's done before, he's are all male orientated. Obviously, Uma Thurman was in one. Yeah, it's nice to get to, and and he, she does does it very well. It's scared shitless on pulling bringing money back from Mexico or something yeah. like that. Yeah, you've just reminded me as well. I can't remember if it was. I think it might be Reservoir Dogs. There's uh, some of the characters when they're probably talking around the restaurant. They're talking about how great they think Pam Greer is in a couple of films. There you go. And they agree with me. Back to that cinematic universe. And and who's going to who's going to disagree with the Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, (laughs) it was even referenced in Fisherman's Friends. Graham. Oh, De Niro. um, I thought was just brilliant. I got that he was underplaying the whole thing and being very, very low key. And I just thought it was just, okay, that's how you really act. You know, you're not big and dramatic. You're just quietly getting on with it and doing your thing. And yeah, I just loved it. Yeah. Greer probably as well. Mm. Okay. I think she's great. (laughs) So I, you know, I don't like to be a party pooper in any sense of the word, but I think Tarantino and this struggle to bring it to a cohesive whole. I think Get Shorty, which came out around the yeah. same time, is a much more realised film. Now, Phil, I'm sure we're going to disagree on this, but why do you think my statement's incorrect? I don't think it's incorrect. I think I'm assuming Get Shorty because it's an Almore Leonard property as well. But yes. I think Get Shorty, and I think actually the better one is Out of Sight. I think Out of Sight is a much better Almore Leonard film. But I think they're just different things, aren't they? So Get Shorty is very much a comedy and a very good one at that. Out of Sight is a super cool sort of crime romance, which is definitely Jennifer Lopez's best film as an actress. Yep. And Tarantino's trying to do a Tarantino thing to an Almond Leonard property. So all three of them are really, really good. And all three of them are very much a piece of that director's sort of mythology in terms of how they want to present their film so after jackie brown the gaps to making films got longer and there were a number of experiments like kill bill got split into two and I always... was kill bill an experiment though i don't i don't think it was started out as an experiment i think he just had a producer that said you can't release a film that long let's Four make hours. double let's make double the amount of money and have two films that's a fair point i still think warren Beatty would have been better as bill because that would be more interesting casting. But, you know, to be fair to Tarantino, that wasn't for the want of trying to do that. Basically, he could have done the the conversation as well, but he wouldn't have done the uh, Kung Fu very well, wouldn't have thought. We don't know. I mean, he'd have been trained for it, wouldn't it, really? 
Paradigm's so, got uh, form, though, hasn't he, really? Yeah, yes, but Tar- <laughs> this is the thing that I love about Tarantino films. He puts people in places you don't expect them to be. Oh, that's true. And Carradine was exactly where I would expect him to be, whereas BD wouldn't have been. Going back to what you were saying, I, I don't think... I don't think they're experiments. So you got kind of got three phases, haven't you? You got his crime films, his three crime films. Then you've got his longer films that ended up for him probably get really disappointed having them chopped into like different lengths and all the rest of it. And then he kind of like restarted his career with his sort of epics that reference genre films. Yeah, which is where we're going to end up now because we're going to go into a World War Two feature. Uh, Inglorious Bastards with a deliberate misspelling from the 1970 Italian film. It was part war, part fantasy. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Ray. And I need me eight soldiers. We're going to be dropped into France dressed as civilians. We're going to be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes, sir! I really like it. I think it... I think it's too long, and I think that if we start talking about Tarantino's films being too long, we'll probably end up down a huge rabbit hole, because he clearly loves his characters' conversations, and he doesn't want to edit them. I almost feel like what he needs is a producer to say to him, do you know what, make this three-hour film, or this three-and-a-half-hour film, and we'll release that on the Blu-ray, but when we release the film at the cinema, we want two hours, 20 minutes, or something like that. So I think Inglorious Bastards is the first one to suffer from that, if you exclude the fact that his previous two got chopped in half and stuff. I really love Hans Lander. I think he's one of the best villains on screen, full stop, um, let alone you know what Tarantino's written. Yeah, so it's the first time I'd ever seen Christoph Waltz, and he's just brilliant in it. Again, it's like it's a World War II film, but it's not really. It's just he wants to make a film about films, right? So he sets a World War II film, but a cinema is really, really important to that World War II film. Christopher Waltz, he picked him up from an Austrian soap opera, so that is just brilliant. Sam, what are your thoughts on Inglorious Bastards? I didn't enjoy it, but Christopher Waltz was the thing that saved it for me, I think. Yeah, it's the, f- it's the first time I'd ever seen him in anything. There's some award speech that he does where he basically thanks Quentin. And he mm. says, you know, thank you. The stuff that I've done now, the, the the career trajectory I've now had because you were kind enough to sort of uh, put me in a film and give me this particular role. Uh, yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, too right. He's, he was fantastic. And everything I've seen him in since, every time I see him in a film, I'm like, yep, can see it. It's the same with, you know, countless, uh, you know, other actors. Like, if you know they're in it, you'll go, all right, I'll give this some time. I'll, I'll see if this is any good. Neil? Christopher Waltz. I mean, he really, really, really makes a sort of builds up the tension, especially in that farmhouse, doesn't he? Just sort of, you, you know that they're un, they're under there. You know that they're he's going to find them, uh, but is he? And then it's the ah, oh, just yeah, very good, very good. Probably went on too long, but hey, we'll 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 come back to that farmhouse in a what minute. What can you do? Yeah, and I'm just going to agree with everybody else because it was an outstanding performance. This is the film where he goes totally into left field and has a fantasy ending where Hitler's killed. When I first saw it, it took me completely by surprise. I was just really shocked that he'd done that. But interestingly, 
when the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, I instantly knew that he wasn't going to kill Sharon Tate because of spoiler what he alert. Glorious <laughs> Bastards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah this one we might need a spoiler alert on. We are going to be talking about the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood shortly. So if you are listening to this, you might want to go see that first. It's almost that thing where you're sitting in the cinema and, like, you just don't know quite what to do. You kind of, it takes you a good amount of time to sort of recalibrate your brain to like what did you just see but actually then obviously when i saw the trailer for once upon a time in hollywood i thought well he's done it before and even tarantino won't film an eight and a half month pregnant woman getting stabbed to death right so he'll do it again well this brings me on quite neatly because in your article you talk about your wife hating tarantino films as does mine and neil interestingly pointed out the barn opening sequence of Inglorious Bastards and Les walked out of the room five minutes into the film absolutely saying I'm not going to watch this she hates Tarantino films so is it the violence or the misogyny that is the problem here so I'm pretty confident that she's not seen anything after Kill Bill up until I dragged her to the cinema to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so she's only seen those sort of first four and the last one and her exact sort of comments to me were it's stupidly violent that it doesn't need to be that violent so that's way over the top and ultimately it's boring because it's just a male fantasy about blokes chatting about things that they think are cool that aren't that's us putting a box then (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. sam you're the fearless once amongst us what do you say about this it's violent it borders on being comical um, and ridiculous like that scene with uh, in, in Django towards the end and uh, a massive spoiler but the the end of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I kind of I, I did have a bit of a sinking feeling when I found out who Margot Robbie's character was because I decided to go in blind because I thought I'll just I don't want to read anything I just want to no. go in experience it I don't want any to ruin it I just want to see it as he wants me to see it you know? and I, I kind of had that feeling of dread you know, because he goes over to the ranch, uh, Brad Pitt's character, and he's kind of, you know, he's checking in and you're just like, oh, no, are they going to kill him? Are they going to kill him? Because I knew enough about Manson that I knew that, because the stunt guy, someone did get stunt, killed on the ranch. The stunt guy who, in real life, went there to check on the old guy, they did kill him. He was the last victim of the Manson family. Two instances where they essentially, what Tarantino did was rewrite history. That was the thing. I knew something was coming. But I honestly, that, that was the dilemma I had in my own mind. I was like, I, is he really going to show this? And I sort of thought, no, 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 no. There's going to be, something else is going to maybe happen. Maybe he won't show it or maybe he'll suggest it or something like that. Um, That's definitely what I thought. I thought yeah. Because I thought right up until the minute they went round the side of the house, I thought, oh, something's going to happen. Something's going off. Yeah. Killed her. Mm. Because and I'd forgotten that Sharon Tate was so heavily pregnant. I thought oh, he's never going to do this. This is just even for Tarantino. This is too this much. This is too far. And when it took the left turn, I was completely taken in. Completely, it. I was just like, oh wow. You well, know. But, yeah, because it was comical, and yes. I thought 
He's he's clearly had too much acid. He's not going to yeah. be yes. He's mm. not going to be able to you know fend off uh, you know three of these assailants with a you know tin of dog food. It's not going to happen. But he he managed it. <laughs> um, and then I was kind of waiting. Oh, maybe they're going to go next door. Oh no, no, they're complete. Okay, they're all dead. Okay. Oh, now there's a flamethrower. Okay. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> so it was it was kind of yeah it was it was it was yeah it was kind of a satisfying ending but at the same time I kind of went yeah okay it's his universe he's rewritten history because that's what Hollywood does yeah. and I, you, you and kind of that's where the title works once upon yeah, a time it does yeah. work yeah. so well yeah. Yeah. yeah and see and look we're all back to the same bloody film talking about it we started mm. off with uh, Inglourious Bastards. And we're reviewing it a few days. In a few days. Mm. And now here we are at the end. And I I thought the end was even better because the minute all of the violence was over, we had that wonderful scene where they're talking through the gate intercom and Sharon Tate's on one end saying, oh, I love your films and, and would you like to come up for a drink? And they walk up almost hand in hand going up the hill to the next level and I just thought yeah that's perfect end yeah. perfect end because it's you know it's 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 it's, it's, it's <clears throat> most fantasies that you have like with any actor that mm. dies too yeah. young you go well what 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 would have James Dean been doing you know yeah. when he was in his 50s and his 60s you know yeah. what what would have Sharon Tate been in you know how good would she have been if she hadn't been murdered well the answer to James Dean is Paul Neymar would never been a star yeah because he got became a star by picking up all the roles that were marked for Dean that Dean then didn't pick up. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's quite interesting. There's always something there to fill the void. Anyway, so we've done war. After that, Tarantino went into westerns. There was Django Unchained, another Italian reference. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a huge amount of western references. But before coming on to that, although we have covered it a little bit now, let's talk about The Hateful Eight. They call him The Hangman. When the handbell says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof, the hangman, catches you, you hang. This here is Daisy Domergue. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Move a little strange, you're gonna get a bullet. Not a warning, not a question. A bullet. <laughs> Let's spend 40 minutes pointlessly looking at scenery. <laughs> Do you think I'm being unfair, what? Phil? What scenery? They're mostly in a cabin. Yeah, I know. And punching Jennifer and Jason Lee for no reason. So, on my retrospective, I sort of try to put films into, like, you know, essential, good, you know, for fans only, that sort of thing. And I think for The Hateful Eight, I put that in the good film category. But I said on a bad day, I put it in the for fans only category because I definitely get the whole... This is essentially Tarantino putting eight characters in a room and then talking, you know, a very, very long time before it then explodes into violence. You could argue the same for quite a few of his films. I guess it ultimately boils down to how much you enjoy Tarantino's characters talking. And it comes back to, does he really need an editor? 
well, not only an editor, but a producer, but we'll cover that in a moment. The important thing here, particularly with The Hateful Eight, is you have a Western that is essentially, for the most part, an Agatha Christie thriller, in that you've got a whodunit. Now, Christie did many things to twist and turn the way she produced her plots, but she never, ever didn't even give you a clue as to who the killer was, and by not even revealing he was in the room in the first half of the film, which is what they did with Channing Tatum in this. I thought, we've got 40 minutes of just pointless talking and punching Jennifer Jason Lee every now and again for a laugh. You've got... Then Channing Tatum starting to appear in the second half of the film, and you've got a misogyny of a level that he's never shown in any of his other films. So I'm not a fan of this one, I've got to be honest. And I'm going to pass this over to you, Sam, for your views. Yeah, that doesn't sit very well. But I, I think that it's not only the, the misogyny, but it, it's, it's the violence in general. This is the argument that's thrown at Tarantino all the time. You know, he's, he's basically saying, why the violence, why the violence? Well, it's, it's the kind of films that he likes. So what he's doing is he's saying, well, I love this style of film. I love this. I love that. But the, the point is, it's it's always comical it's always over the top or the camera moves you know it's it's never as bad as you think it's just you think that it's as bad as it is so when it becomes to the misogyny yeah uh, yeah I, I i do have a problem with that but then if you if you look at the kind of films that he's he's harking back to if you look at the kind of characters the kind of yeah, it's it's going to be riddled with that. Yeah, it, it's 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 unfortunate because it, it does ruin and mar your experience because what you're doing is you're you're looking at it going, well, actually, no, we're in the 21st century now. Mm, that's not really good enough. So yeah, it's 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 tricky. I get where you're coming from. I mean, most of the violence thrown at her is coming from Kurt Russell's character, who he basically he makes this guy to be a really hideous, horrible human being. I mean, that's what Kurt Russell's ultimately doing in that film. You know, whether you think it's relevant or not, I guess, is down to your taste, I guess. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee did get an Oscar nomination out of it, I guess, for her pains, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes any difference. I mean, she's always suffered for her art. Let's look at films like Flesh and Blood, but... Uh... In this, even to the hanging scene at the end, it's just protracted and drawn out in a way that was very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, but then so was the, you know, you gave it all the way back to Reservoir Dogs and say he didn't need to show you um, Michael Madsen torturing a policeman and cutting his ear off. But he didn't. He cut away from it. With Jennifer Jason Leigh, it's full on in camera. I'd need to have a look. I'd need to have a look at that again because, okay, from a 21st century perspective, we can say yeah, violence against women is morally repugnant and we all hate it, but... but the, the film set in the 1800s. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and she said, was, honestly, despite what you think, Jeff, she wasn't actually really hit in real life. It's all no. pretend. Yeah. <laughs> it's how you show it. It's how, I know important. it's how. Look, you know, yeah. I love screen violence and you know that, guys, but... Uh, even I had a problem with that one character and the way it was being done. As Phil's just said, it was all coming from Kurt Russell, who is a. But by the time she's hung, Kurt Russell's dead. Yeah, but 
that's, yeah, it's Tarantino in his last 10 minutes. He has to have some violence in there. We said we keep doing this. We keep coming back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But again, massive spoilers. I think there's a few scenes in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Tarantino is overtly saying, these are all the things that you all have poffered me about, and I'm just going to tell you like that this is the way it is. Start drooling now. Mug, old-fashioned root beer, and the new Twist Top bottle. Now for all the jitterbugs from Pico Rivera, baby, I'm going to cut one loose for him. Hey, heck doll, your mama looking for you. There's sort of three scenes in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I think are Tarantino explicitly saying, this is the sort of film I do. I'm not really interested in your thoughts. And what so scenes are those in, Phil? So... There's the scene at the end when Manson characters are in the car saying, these people from TV taught us how to kill, so we're going to kill the people who taught us how to kill. But that's what they said at their trial. So he didn't... It's not Tarantino saying that. It's what they said at the trial. But, But then what he does is those characters in his revisionist history don't get killed. They kill those people. I know, I love that. So he's saying... Yeah, so this is you know this is what I do, and then the other scene is um, we've been complaining that he meanders and takes a really long time with you know what he's doing, and the hateful way is a really good example of that. And it, once upon a time in Hollywood, he's got DiCaprio talking to a child star explaining this western, and he's essentially basically with his book explaining the main crux of the plot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, almost to me it's like him sort of saying this is the main plot everyone this is just so you're clear this is the main plot but i'm going to take my good time getting there with everything else around it (laughs) and that's what i feel we see and the the final one is um the feet front and center for god's sake you know we haven't touched on that but yeah because people people have complained about the fact that he's clearly got a foot fetish so he's like all right i do there we go, front and centre. And he's just basically unapologetically saying... And that's why you need to produce it to stop him from doing it, because it's just ridiculous. A lot of Tarantino, what he, what he does is he very much believes in, like, whether it's auteur theory, but it's very much about he believes he needs to have a brand. Part of the reason people go and watch his films are because of Tarantino's brand. Okay. And that's his brand. So, and also that the feet were filthy. Yeah. <laughs> so she's used to walking around barefoot. But, but you so it's a natural thing for her to if she's going to put her feet up. Okay, well, let's move away from the feet. She's going to be barefoot. It's, yeah, right. Okay, Are you getting away. weirded out? Jeff? I am getting weirded Shall out. Shall I continue? I never, you <laughs> yes, can please. continue. Because this is so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's hysterical. But the whole point of this is Tarantino films, in my experience of generally riveted audience when you're in there you're watching it when i saw this five people walked out well so, see, I, was, going wrong. I was so riveted i didn't see five people no nor so, did i there's four people talking here who we all clearly love films right and everyone i've spoken to who's watched once upon a time in hollywood who even remotely shares an interesting film with me thinks it's amazing i've spoken to about half a dozen people who, who watch films sort of casually who think it's one of the most boring films yes. they've ever yeah. seen yeah. their attitude is nothing happens one guy i knew didn't even know who sharon tate was had no clue yeah. who she was or what happened to her and he literally was like well what was the point in that 
he just, yeah, his whole attitude to the whole thing was nothing happened. It was pointless. I think for me, and I can't speak for Sam, but I can speak pretty much for Neil and Graham. We grew up with that era. So... Aha, this is revenge for these yeah, being 12. You lot being bloody 11 and 12, <laughs> now you're paying for it. So the whole thing, you know, they throw in actors like Norman Fell. They do a version of California Dreaming where the main singer is the main singer for McKenna's Gold. So they have the poster for McKenna's Gold, Gold going yeah. on in the background. And they had Mama Cass running around at the James Playboy Stacey driving off on a motorbike, which means something to people who liked Alias Smith & Jones. So all of these sort of things for me were great. I felt it's overlong, but there's a lot to revel in. So, yeah, but I do see there's a lot of people. I mean, there's a friend of Dex, went to see it and said, I walked out after 40 minutes, the most boring 40 minutes of my life. Yeah, hmm. and I've got a couple of friends who, who are both, as, as Phil says, casual film watchers. You know, they'll go and watch stuff. And they said, well, that's, you know, two to three hours of my life I'll never get back. I thought it was really boring. And I had to sit there and defend it. I say, no, it's really, really good. Uh, yeah, I did, I did enjoy it. I kind of knew that there were things that, well, I was missing. I knew there was going to be things that I probably wasn't going to get. Like I said, it with so many of his films, you kind of, you you know that it's an advent calendar. You know you're going to have to, okay, right, what is that whole sequence about? You do a bit of delving and you realise that he's referencing something else and you go, okay, all right, fascinating. So, and it just goes on and on and on. And you know that there's loads of sort of uh, in-jokes and loads of stuff because Roman, uh, Roman Polanski's in it. Yeah. And yeah. he sat at breakfast and he's uh, he's talking to the dog, and he he calls the dog this really long sort of fangled European name. I can't, I can't remember what it is now. It's something like Doctor, and apparently it's it's the Doctor of Rosemary's Baby. Is that right? <laughs> See, then that went over yeah, my it's, head. It's same. So, yeah. and, and that made me laugh. So when I found out, I was like, oh, I knew it. There's 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 something, but there's all these fantastic little bits and pieces along the way. But yeah, he built up the dread. Because the thing is, the reason it was so kind of, for me, I, I had to stick through it is because the second I found out who Margot Robbie's character was, I was like, I know something's coming. Mm. And for me, there was a lot of kind of like, something's coming. And there was that whole dread of when he goes to the uh, the ranch, I was like, oh no, he's going to get killed, isn't he? Oh no. And that's exactly what I felt. Cause, because Margot Robbie's character his version of her, she's so lovely. You know, she goes to the to the cinema to watch her own film, and she's enjoying it. And she's she enjoys enjoying the fact that other people, people are enjoying her. it. And she's the klutz, and you really get to root for her. And then she's pregnant at the end. And you're going, oh, that's nice. And you think, oh no, he's going to pull a fast one something's on us here. Happening. Something's coming, and the dread was absolutely palpable at the end until he pulls the switch, and then you go. Oh, uh, hang on a minute. Yeah, and you kind of just go, uh, 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 okay. Yeah. What, what, what? With the, uh, okay, and he's smashing her face on the mantelpiece, uh, on the coffee table. Right, okay. Brilliant. Right. Loved and, it. And then she runs. Hang the, on. And then she runs. You don't like J- Jennifer Jason Lee? No, because that character, I am. And yet, the and way yet that smashing a, a girl's yeah, face on the. In real life, butchered a pregnant woman. There's a but you don't know what Jennifer Jason Lee did. But again, it's pretend. Yeah, that is pretend. pretend. Those are real characters. No, no, I'm sorry. There's a, the point. 
And he tortures the guy just as much as they torture the woman. What, the dog? Two women. The dog The dog does. Brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) Just a shame they didn't get the Charlie Manson. Sorry, Phil. I was going to say, here's a question for you then. For everyone born 1990 or onwards, so they'd be like 29 or younger, who are just casual film fans, what do you think they'll make of that film? I'm really interested. They'll be bored shitless. Unless they're fil- yeah. they're film fans or they're really, really, really wanting to watch it. Go on, you follow people like Bianca Garner and those on Twitter. Well, they're film fans. They are film fans, but they don't know this era. They don't know it like we know it. Yeah, but I don't know it, Jeff. <laughs> no, no, true. Bianca, if you're so, listening, will be interested in your views. That's my sort of opinion, is, is it's about... So if you say, excuse all the sort of film people who have, like, done their best to watch as many films as possible and know who Sharon Tate is and who Roman Polanski is, all that sort of stuff. If you're sort of 30 years or younger and, yeah. you know, you're you're going, oh, I love Tarantino because he makes violent films or because he's cool or whatever, they'd be watching this going, what on earth's going on? When's it going to get to the good bits? Yeah. Conscious of time, Phil, final question for you. Quentin Tarantino has promised to retire when he makes 10 films. Do you think this is a gimmick or is he just lazy? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's his brand. I, I honestly do. So if he does, I think it'd be a huge shame. It'd be, it's like when Soderbergh announced that he was going to retire. And yeah, I but, but really he did work. He was what a workaholic. Tar- you can never describe Tarantino as a workaholic. Uh, well, you don't, know, you don't know how many scripts he's got in, the, you know, and all the rest of it that he's working on. Just because it's not visible to you doesn't mean he's not working on scripts, does it? How long does it take to make a bloody film of that complexity, <laughs> Jeff? It's not. Oh, oh, yeah, hang on, Jeff. I'll just sit down. I'll knock the one of these out before lunchtime. Hey, all done, film, script, post production, editing. Oh, come on, getting the it's money. Probably like, it five is probably like four, 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 four five years per film, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. That's no, a lot that's of work. not. No, no, it's not. Not for it somebody is. like this. It is. He can not get a script in three, four months. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 oh, I can't imagine that a film that was two hours forty minutes in length would have been a script that gets knocked out in three or four months because he's probably got to edit it and shorten it a lot just to get it into a filmable format. And even and then he's the idea, even the idea of doing the Sharon Tate murder as a love letter to the 1960s Hollywood. That is so bizarre. So I do, so I think his 10 films is, you know, the ninth film by Tarantino, et cetera, et cetera. It's a brand, isn't it? He, he, his attitude is that Tarantino films is like, it's a cool thing. Everyone wants to watch them. If he makes it, you know, if he says, I'm going to make 10 films, then it makes every single one an event, doesn't it? I really hope he doesn't stop at 10, but, you know, let's worry about that after he's done 10. Do you know what gets me, Phil, is all these filmmakers that can't get the breaks to look at this guy who says, well, I'm just going to make a few and I'm going to stop. I just think it's arrogant. Ah. There's a there, there's another filmmaker who I'm sure did it, and the guy who made The American with George Clooney and he made the... Um, Joy Division film. I'm sure he said, I'm going to make three films. Control. Who made yeah. who directed Control? Oh, it was Antin Corbin, wasn't it? A photographer. Yes, I'm sure that he said, I'm going to make three films. And he, I think he did Control and The American. I'm not sure if he's made his third one or not. But that's under the radar, isn't it? It's not like this guy. 
Well, well, Tarantino keeps saying that he just wants to give it up and start writing novels, doesn't he? So maybe, maybe that's what he wants to do. Maybe he just wants to sort of stop, um, yeah, stop making films, just get down to the business of writing. Maybe and, enjoys. And if more. people are asking him every bloody five minutes when he's on tour trying to promote his film, why do you put so much violence in it? I'd want to do ten and stop because it would bore the hell out of me. No, you wouldn't. You'd be addicted to fame, <laughs> and that's what this guy is. He won't stop. So- so do you, what's, what's this tenth film going to be then? Is it going to be this horror film you mentioned or is it going to be Star Trek? They're never letting make Star Trek, surely. That, that would be that would be amazing. <laughs> I, I, I would have loved to have seen his take on Casino Royale that he planned with Pierce Brosnan. Obviously never got off the ground because they then brought it back in for Daniel Craig. Let's end it there. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think we've covered all things Tarantino. What's your next retrospective? Well, I've got... The Scorsese DVDs lined up on a shelf, um, but I haven't actually started, and I'm wondering. So like, if you followed so Sam's if, advice, you, yeah, you can well, get through Nolan quicker. <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that Nolan or Fincher? I think have made probably like what ten films each, something like that. Whereas Scorsese, I've got a, a whole shelf of DVDs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Fincher. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You can talk about my favourite Fincher film. Which is? Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Brilliant film. Great film. Under, totally underrated. So can I ask a question? If Tarantino brought out a Star Trek movie, or he brought out a horror film, would we all go and see it? Well, you wouldn't watch a horror film. I'd watch a Tarantino horror film. Do you know... I'd watch... I'd watch a Tarantino film because of his amazing brand where they all start with the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, but, but you would watch it. But Crawl was based on an idea by Tarantino. Oh, shush. Yeah, all right. Still not watching it. Still You've not. seen Crawl. What's it it's like, It's not film? the 10th Tarantino I, I, film. I thought Crawl was great fun. It's a really, it's a really good, taut creature feature. I enjoyed it quite a lot. So if you were to compare it to A Quiet Place... It's not sci-fi. Which is a creature feature. It's not sci-fi. It's a creature feature. Um, no, they're not. They're not the same. I mean, Crawl is Crawl has not got the smarts. Crawl is about get the characters into the predicament as quickly as possible, and then and then like everyone has to use wind-up torches and you know try and keep you on the edge of your seat for an hour. All right. Would Neil and Graham survive it? I don't know because like. I don't know. I've obviously watched too many Tarantino films as a teenager, but like these films don't scare me. Like I watched Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark last night, and I thought it was completely mundane in terms of oh, there's nothing scary that. at all in it. Yeah, so. you, you're just numb. That's what the problem. Yeah, yeah, Graham said he's up for that one. Well, in fact, he's not. He's, he said he's up for Angel Has Fallen next week. <laughs> Phil, it's been a real pleasure talking about this. I look forward to talking about the next one. Sam, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. That's right. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's a wrap. This is Batman. And Robin. With exclusive news for KHJ listeners. It's the Batphone Secret Number Contest presented by Boss Radio. There's a terrific prize for the first KHJ listener to guess the secret number of our Batphone. You've seen us answering the Batphone on TV. It's a special hotline Commissioner Gordon uses to contact us whenever there's trouble. There are seven digits in the Batphone's secret number. Listen to what you'll win if yours is the first correct answer received by KHJ. 
You'll visit Batman and me at 20th Century Fox and be our guest for lunch at the studio. Then you'll ride to the Batcave in the Batmobile, where Robin and I will present you with a 1966 console color television set. To visit us and win the color TV, just guess the secret Batphone number. Watch for Robin and me on Channel 7 Wednesday and Thursday nights. And keep it on KHJ for more clues in the Batphone secret number contest. (laughs) 